Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault. That's right. And since the the last vault episode was about the moons of Jupiter, we figured, well, we should also uh, revisit our episode about the moons of Saturn. Right. So this originally aired on August 4th, 2016, and it's an episode called Saturn's Brood Beyond the Outer Ring, which... Man, that would have been a good B-movie title. I don't know if we say the same thing in the episode. <laughs> I think we do get into a, a little bit into films that take place on or around Saturn. I think we talk a little bit about... Uh, Outland? Did we talk about Outland? Yeah, I think I, we did, yeah. yeah. And uh, and then also, I think uh, Silent Running uh, comes up as well, the, uh, the classic Bruce Dern film where he sort of hides out near Saturn. Man, what is wrong with our brains? The main thing we remember about every episode we do is <laughs> what... Sean Connery sci-fi movie we talked about in it. <laughs> you know, these are the, the Sean Connery-based uh, guideposts that are just kind of uh, you know, tacked into the ground so we can revisit uh, uh, these uh, episodes in the future. Coming soon on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, The Science of Zardoz. <laughs> okay, well, we shouldn't take any more time at the beginning here. Uh, have fun with Saturn's Brood. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. There's peace in those rings. As we spiraled into Jupiter, our orbit decaying rapidly inside the path of the sulfurous Io, we assumed that we and our forest dome bio-arc were headed for the same fate as the old Galileo probe, through the fierce radiation belts, through the crushing gravity, into the Jovian atmosphere, and all the way down. But then something happened. It was as if a hand of a silent god reached out from the darkness of space and just plucked us gently from the depths of the gas giant's gravity well and lifted us up, up to freedom. We still don't know what happened. Our navigational computers have no explanation. But our orbit ceased its decay, and with a slow, gradual acceleration driven from some source totally foreign to the ship itself, we were on our way, but not on our way home. Something out there, some unknown force, is urging us in the other direction. Despite the long journey, our ever-dwindling share of sunlight and the powerful radiation bath we just endured, the plants that once struggled for life in our forest dome are now unexpectedly thriving, as if more of the solar system's great moons want to be seen, want to be understood, and some hidden intelligence is helping them. And now the cold, golden wheel of Saturn looms in the foreground, with its major moons appearing as tiny points of light in the darkness, growing ever closer as our spiral begins again. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Joe McCormick. And back by popular demand, <laughs> we are now going to explore the moons of Saturn. So this will be... I guess a sequel of sorts to the episode we did a while back about the moons of Jupiter, or the major moons of Jupiter. In both cases, these are large gas giants. They have lots of moons, so we have to, uh, I would say, pick our battles. But they're not battles. They're missions of peace and exploration. That's, that's right. Yeah, in uh, the case of Saturn here, there are currently 53 known moons, nine currently awaiting confirmation. So that's a lot of moons. 
Uh, but we're going to indeed going to stick to just the, 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 the key items of interest here, the ones indeed that you've likely heard of in science fiction, that you've certainly heard of uh, in science journalism. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we're going we're, we're gonna, to – we've picked out some good de- destinations here for our trip. So, Robert, Saturn's a kind of different beast than Jupiter, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to lump them together. They're the two biggest objects in our solar system. Two biggest objects, two enormous gas giants, easily the two jazziest planets as well. Like my my son, who's four, I haven't really been pushing the the space agenda as much as I have like the Earth sciences agenda. Uh-huh. But even he instantly knows Saturn and he knows Jupiter. Well, Saturn, I would say, is the uh, iconic image of a planet now. Mm-hmm. If you go to, uh, if you're looking for clip art or vector images or something right. like that of images of planets, you're going to see Saturn. Because Saturn, you can recognize, it's got the rings. It's the planet that's not just different in terms of coloring and uh, and what you might see about its atmosphere or lack thereof or cratering and stuff like that. Its whole profile is different. It's like a different animal altogether. Yeah, and it's it's kind of the pinup model of the solar system. It is the one that you yeah. see the, the most just really gleaming, elegant, just crisp images. And if you have just a row of globes, a row of circles, the presence of Saturn, perhaps more so than any of the others, is going to cue you in, oh, I'm looking at a model of the solar system. Oh, right. Yeah. It's the difference between uh, a bunch of balls and planets. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But it's also different than Jupiter in that Jupiter was this uh, very intense experience. Now, Saturn also is very large. It has a deep gravity well. You know, it's got those same things going for it. But Saturn, I would say, is a, a more peaceful and colder thing to experience, un- unlike the intense radiation bath of Jupiter. Yeah, it uh, it's a little more serene. Though, as we'll discuss here, it itself is a very hostile world, uh, and uh, its moons are pretty hostile as well. At so, least to beings like us. At least to yeah, weak, uh, fragile beings like us who but, can scarcely survive uh, outside of a slim portion of our own planet's environment. Uh, reading, for, reading up for this episode, I was astonished to discover how excited scientists are about the possibility for life in a couple of Saturn's moons. Because when you think about life in our solar system beyond Earth, everybody always mentions Europa. Mm -hmm. That's the one that comes to mind. And for good reason. There's a lot of reason to want to study Europa from an astrobiological perspective. But Saturn has some really good moons going forward, and we're going to explore what's going on on those moons today. All right. Before we get into that, though, let's let's just roll through some of the basics about Saturn, just to give everyone a grounding in the the planet that plays host to all of these wonderful spheres, and and ovals, and occasional <laughs> just lumps of rock, uh, and the rings. potatoes. Yeah, the spongy potato. Uh, so again, it's the second largest planet in our solar system. It's a gas giant without solid substance, save its dense, hot, pressurized core of rock, ice, water, and other compounds. And uh, all of this is in, enveloped by liquid metallic hydrogen inside a layer of liquid hydrogen. Okay. So it's located 9.5 astronomical units away from the sun, sixth planet in our solar system, as the posters uh, tell us, and uh, has seven icy rings that encircle it, spanning up to 175,000 miles or 282,000 kilometers. So what do the rings consist of? Yeah, I've always wondered this. Yeah, it, contrary to what Bugs Bunny may have taught you, if, if I remember correctly, they are not uh, solid rings that you can run around on. 
Uh, they're not like a treadmill or anything. But scientists haven't always known that. That's true. They ha- have not always uh, been aware of that. We know now that it's it's mostly water ice. Mm-hmm. The planet's ring system extends hundreds of thousands of kilometers out from the planet, but the vertical height is typically about 10 meters or 30 feet in the what? main rings. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. But 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 there's 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 a key but coming up. Uh-huh. They can grow far larger. Uh, during Saturn's um, autumn 2009 equinox, the Cassini spacecraft images uh, showed us that vertical formations in some of the rings uh, had piled the particles up uh, in ridges more than uh, three kilometers or two miles tall. Yeah, and there's some fascinating structures and behaviors that you can see within the rings too, including these like uh, propeller shaped objects yeah. that can form. It's crazy. Now, like Jupiter, Saturn is made mostly of hydrogen and helium. And in the upper atmosphere, wind speeds can reach 500 meters or uh, 1,600 uh, feet per second in the uh, equatorial region. And these that, winds, That's fast, huh? Yeah, it's pretty fast. So it, it, it looks more peaceful than it is. Just because uh-huh. it doesn't have a big red spot doesn't mean it has some, some anger to it. Uh, these winds combined with heat rising from the planet's interior cause uh, the yellow gold bands that we see visible in the atmosphere. But they, they're not as visible as the bands we see on Jupiter. Right. Yeah, it's not It's not as angry. It's not. It doesn't look like somebody just poured a bunch of like red liquid into a, you know, a swirling mixer bowl of pancake batter and blood. <laughs> that is a great way to describe it. That's how I think of Jupiter. Yeah, uh, th- this one is more just like pancake batter with some with some honey at it. You know, there's a wonderful coincidence with the other episode that we recorded this week, Robert, which was the episode on the Library of Babel. Now, I'm not sure what the publishing schedule is going to be, but in the episode on the li- in the Library of Babel, we discussed how people in the Library of Babel seek out the Crimson Hexagon. That's right, and indeed, there is a hexagon. On Saturn, it's uh, it does not contain any books. It is not a room per se. Well, you don't know that. I'm pretty sure. Uh, <laughs> but yes, if you look at you, you, I'm sure a number of people have seen seen images of this here. But if you if you look at various images of Saturn, there appears to be a hexagon at the top. Yeah, almost as if it has a little hexagonal um, hat, a little skull cap on. Yeah, um, and, and it's weird to look at because it is. you're seeing this in nature. This is not obviously an object designed by anybody on purpose, but it's not circular. It's got these clear corners. Yeah, it's not the kind of shape that you would necessarily expect. But there is, of course, a very natural reason for this. This is caused by jet streams uh, in the in the, the wind systems of Saturn. Uh, basically, you have a region here that's bound on each side by different eddying, eddying storms. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's the kind of thing, if you've ever um, met somebody who's playing with a lot of bubbles... You know, like doing a lot of bubble art. Not sure what you mean. Oh, oh bubble. Bubble, like blowing bubbles and then sticking other bubbles, maybe blowing smoke into those bubbles. Okay, I'm not very familiar with this art form. Oh, you're not? Oh, well, it's it was big medicine on like uh, Sesame Street and, and um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood back in the day, I I've believe. I've completely yeah. lost touch with my inner child. Oh, well, blowing big bubbles is a lot of fun. Uh-huh. Uh, but blowing small bubbles, too, because you can join them together. And if you really know what you're doing, yeah. you can form geometric shapes at the center where these bubbles bubbles border other bubbles and kind of force uh, different shapes towards the center. Oh, yeah. OK. Yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. So I, I try to think of that when I think of, uh, of this particular scenario to try and remind myself that, yes, uh, non-spherical shapes are possible within nature uh, given the right circumstances. Okay. 
Now, uh, another quick fact about Saturn here. A day lasts 10 hours, and a year, the time it takes for the body to orbit its central star, lasts 29 Earth years. Wow. And uh, the planet's uh, magnetic field is smaller than Jupiter's, but still 578 times as powerful as Earth's, shielding Saturn and many of its moons from the solar wind. Okay. Well, that's going to be important if we're talking about, I don't know, putting a colony there or something. Very important. So on that note, let's start talking about the discovery of Saturn, the discovery of Saturn's moon. Saturn, of course, is a very – we've known about Saturn for a very long time. Right. Nobody knows who discovered Saturn because the ancients knew about Saturn. We've known about Saturn as long as we've had history. You know, naked eye astronomers could peer up into the night sky and see Saturn. So uh, so we're, what we're really going to be talking about is the, the first telescopic studies of Saturn. And you might recall from the last episode that the person usually credited with discovering the largest moons of Jupiter, the four Galilean moons, was the Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei. And Galileo's also given credit for discovering the rings of Saturn, though he didn't really understand what he was looking at. Now, like we said, everybody already knew about Saturn, but uh, they, they knew it as a point of light in the sky. And when Galileo looked at Saturn, he saw something very odd, a triple star. Hmm. It looked like one enormous star with two tiny stars attached to it on either side, like little sidecars riding along with it. Now, fun fact, Galileo wanted to get credit for being the first person to discover this triple star, but he wasn't ready to publish his findings yet. So he used a method that I thought was pretty clever. He instead disseminated an anagram. Uh, And by the way, when this came up, I had to look up anagrams of our names for fun. I have no good ones. None? Not really. My name is – I've got Comic Jock Rim and that's about it. But Robert, you've got some awesome anagrams in case you've never looked them up before. You've got uh, Mr. Babble Rot. Ooh, that's pretty good. You've also got Barrel Tomb. Barrel Tomb. Okay. But anyway, uh, so anagram, jumbled around letters, right. you know, jumbled up and then you can you can unjumble them to spell the original message and show if it's a sufficiently short number of letters, you know, you can show that you had this idea all along. And that, that was Galileo's idea. So the anagram that Galileo spread around could be unjumbled to read something along the lines of, I've discovered the triform planet. Ooh, Okay. And if anybody tried to scoop him, he could just unscramble it and show that he'd seen it first. But we now know that Saturn is not a triform planet. So who figured that out? Well, in 1655, around 1655-56, the Dutch astronomer, mathematician, and all-around science guy, uh, Christian Huygens, made a study of Saturn through a more powerful telescope. And he made his own discoveries. So by observing how the side stars of Saturn could disappear and then reappear, and this is something other observers had noticed too, uh, Huygens realized that he was actually looking at a planet surrounded by a flat disk of rings. It could disappear because of what you mentioned about how flat it is, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So it could be very bright when we're looking at it at an angle where the the rings are uh, reflecting up toward us. But when the rings suddenly turn to where they're pretty much perpendicular with our view, they completely disappear. Right. There's not enough surface to reflect anything. Yeah, it's like a it's like a lady in a hat with a wide brim. Depending yeah. on how she is uh, holding her head, the positioning of her neck, yeah. uh, you may or may not see the, the brim of the hat and you'll see it to varying degrees. Yeah, so she tilts her head towards you, you see the brim. She tilts her head flat relative to your perspective, you don't really see much. 
And so Huygens observed that, but Huygens didn't know what the rings were made of. I, I think he actually thought they might be some kind of solid structure, maybe more like the Bugs Bunny example. <laughs> and just try to imagine that in reality. Again, I, I love thinking about like when you had less information and, and you just were trying to conceive of what the universe was like, solid rings around a planet. Yeah, I mean, they, based on the information available at the time, yeah, why not? Fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, uh, subsequently, we learned more about the rings of, of Saturn. Now, of course, Huygens discovered something else while studying Saturn, a moon. Nobody had seen any of the moons of Saturn up until this time. And he discovered the largest moon of Saturn, ah. which is Titan, which is going to be a fascinating thing to explore in a little bit here. Uh, but then subsequently, other moons of Saturn were discovered by astronomers like uh, Giovanni Cassini and William Herschel. And we're still learning more about Saturn's smaller satellites today. We don't know everything there is to know about Saturn's moons and especially its smallest moons. Yeah, again, like I mentioned earlier, 53 known moons, nine currently awaiting confirmation. So we're, st we're still figuring it all out. Now, we have actually sent exploration missions to Saturn. Uh, so there were several flybys, Pioneer 11, Voyager 1 and 2. They, they did flybys of Saturn, did a little bit of observation. But the big one, the real hero for, pl for planetary science and, and discovery in the Saturn sphere is Cassini. Mm -hmm. uh, the Cassini-Huygens mission. So the Cassini orbiter entered Saturn's orbit in 2004 during Saturn's northern winter, and it's been conducting research on Saturn and its moons ever since. And it has sent back some awesome photos. Yes. One of the coolest thing about the Cassini photos I've always thought is how real photos that are taken by Cassini. Now, of course, they're usually like color enhanced or enhanced in some way, but right. real photos taken by this probe look like illustrations. Mm -hmm. They often, they just don't look like a picture that somebody took with a real camera, but they are with, of course, some enhancements. Uh, I don't know. I, I love that. I love it when reality can't pass for real. Yeah, because the thing that you're photographing is so utterly unreal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to, to our earthling conceptions mm -hmm. to everything that we have evolved to view here on this world. Yeah. And of course, another part of the Cassini mission was the, the Huygens probe, which went down, landed on Titan in 2005 uh, after Cassini reached Saturn in 2004. And that also sent back some amazing imagery and made some fascinating discoveries that we will talk about in a bit when it's time to speak of Titan. So now it's time to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will be spiraling in towards Saturn, beginning with the outermost moons and working our way in. All right, we're back. Robert, it, it seems like we're coming up on a, on a strange outer moon. Yes, we're in fact, we're coming up on the largest of the outer moons, Iapetus. Iapetus. Yes, it Doesn't is. that sound uh, Lovecraftian, like something they would worship, a chanted name? Iapetus, Iapetus. You just want to invoke it, yeah. Uh -huh. Named, uh, by the way, for a uh, Tartarus-bound titan. So it's nice and it has a nice gloomy feel to it. Uh, Iapetus is uh, not unlike the yin-yang of Chinese philosophy. Just yeah. to, to, to prepare everyone for what you're going to see here, uh, its leading hemisphere is dark, while its trailing hemisphere is significantly brighter. It's a tidally locked world, like a number of moons, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that one side always faces Saturn and the other side always faces the void. It essentially looks like 
the yin-yang. It essentially looks like the black and white cookie from that episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> it's, it's like the, the two-face uh-huh. of Saturn's moons. And it's it's crazy to behold. And it's been crazy for scientists to try and figure out exactly why this is, which uh, we'll get into shortly. Mentioning two-face, it's, it's monstrous in more than one way mm-hmm. in appearance. Yeah, that's right. It also has uh, an equatorial ridge, which is a, a chain of six-mile or 10-kilometer-high mountains. And th- this is wonderful. It, it might have formed during a high-speed rotation period or, most exciting of all, of all, it might be a collapsed ring. No. Yeah. You're making that up. No, that's one of the theories. Collapsed ring. Yeah. These are essentially like the collapsed ring mountains, which so, sounds like a perfect – it sounds oh. like something out of a Jack Vance novel, you know? So it could have had a ring that, that was drawn into the planet by gravity, collapsed mm-hmm. into it, and became this – planet-wide ridge of mountains that looks like a horror movie monster backbone sticking up out of the planet's flesh. Yeah, it's crazy. Killer. (laughs) Now, it it orbits at uh, about a a little over 2 million miles or 3 million kilometers away from Saturn, and it has probably, uh, and this has probably protected it from tidal forces and melting episodes that would have resurfaced it. So it's far enough away from Saturn that that Saturn's gravity is not uh, warping it too much. Yeah, it's so, not heating it and causing the geological activity. Exactly. But you do have the strange dark and white side. And um, there have been three major theories over the years as to why one side is black and the other is white. Okay, hit me. All right, so one theory is that Iapetus may be sweeping up particles from the more distant dark moon Phoebe and steadily renewing this dusting to cover up all but the newest craters. Okay, so mm. that's one possibility. Okay. Another one is that uh, ice uh, volcanism may be distributing the dark materials. We're talking uh, volcano-like eruptions of hydrocarbons, perhaps due to chemical reactions that are in turn caused by solar radiation. Oh, nice. So you've got a planet that's half covered in soot, sort of. Yeah, now, the third theory, and this is the one that's, that ha- is backed up by a lot of data from uh, 2007's uh, uh, Cassini flyby, and that is that thermal segregation is going on. Hmm. So, and what is that? So, yeah, this is how it works. It takes the moon as long as 79 days to rotate around Saturn. And if some dark material made its way to the moon at some point in the past, mm-hmm. perhaps due, tying into one to the, the first theory, um, then the long periods of solar exposure on the dark side would have caused the dark material to heat up and volatile icy materials uh, within the dark to sublime out and retreat to colder regions. The bright regions become brighter and the dark regions get darker. Ah, okay. So it's sort of a slow attrition. Yeah. Okay, so Iapetus is a fairly small world, right? It's about one-seventh the mass of Pluto, about 40% the width of Earth's moon. Uh, But what is the life potential, I want to know? That's our main question with all these, right? Yeah, yeah. That certainly that's the the, the one thing we want to know on each of these. Is it possible that there's some sort of life clinging to this little moon? Now we know that the planet itself is probably alive, and it's a curled up movie monster that's going to <laughs> unfurl with its backbone finally uh, sinking in as it stretches its back out and raises its claws. But assuming that's not the case, and it's just a rock in space. Well, what, well, yeah, what's the hope that there's life on it? Uh, very very little. Yeah. Very little hope for life here. Uh, despite the insistence by various UFO groups that there are domed cities or other such constructions here. What? Well, if you look closely enough and you want it enough, you can find domed cities on just about any world. Ain't that always the case? Yeah. 
could we put a colony there, though? Mm, if it were entirely self-contained and we had the you know the necessary technology, of course, possibly. But you get down to the fact that there are worse and better places to consider in the neighborhood. Okay. But it wouldn't be like trying to put a colony on Io or something. No. It's like you could do it, but there are better places. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, this world is the location of the monolith in the original novel 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, so not – wait, hold on. They moved the monolith, it. the monolith on Earth's moon, or the monolith on uh, uh, Jupiter in orbit around Jupiter. Right in the movie, it's in orbit around Jupiter. Okay, but in the book, it was Saturn. But in making 2001: Space Odyssey, they couldn't get the um, the models to look right for Saturn's rings, so they changed uh, it to Jupiter. Huh? Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, it's interesting to look at the the media, the fictional attention that has gone to Saturn versus Jupiter. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Saturn is often, it's almost like Saturn is the heaven of our science fiction uh, uh, dreams of our future solar system. Yeah. And Jupiter is more the hell. Jupiter, Or at least the limbo. Yeah, like Jup Jupiter is where you, you, the, the Jovian moons, that's where you put weird bases and weird, weird colonies and mining colonies and maybe prisons. Saturn, for the most part, it seems like there's a lot of dreamier stuff going on there. Yeah. I or agree. Maybe that's just me. That's my my read on some of the examples I was looking at. No, earlier. it is dreamy. You're exactly right. I mean, we mentioned that earlier. It's a, the the Saturn imagery throughout popular culture and art and everything. It's very serene, very dreamy, uh, very ooh pretty kind of uh, quiet silver light in the background of space. Now we're gonna do a quick flyby of the next moon because. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot to see there, but it is worth pointing out as a strange landmark in the sphere of, of Saturn, and that's the moon Hyperion. Yes, Hyperion, despite its wonderful name, despite uh, whatever whatever you might uh, expect of it based on uh, Dan uh, Simon's wonderful Hyperion books, mm -hmm. uh, which, which, by the way, do not take place on this Hyperion. I think it's alluded that uh, a distant exoplanet named Hyperion is colonized by individuals who originally somehow tied to Hyperion in our solar system, but totally different things. Because Hyperion in our solar system, as it orbits around uh, Saturn, is essentially a giant potato. Yeah, it's uh, irregular shaped, mm -hmm. and it's very small, about 1.1 times the mass of Earth's atmosphere. Not Earth, but the gas in the atmosphere. Uh, about 10% the width of Earth's moon. It's not very big. And it's shaped very strangely, like a like a spongy, low density sweet potato. Yeah, yeah. I've seen it described as a large frozen rubble pile. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's the largest of Saturn's irregular non spherical moons, and it's uh, probably the remnant of a larger moon that was destroyed by a major impact. So this is just a junk moon. This is a rubble moon. Mm -hmm. We're not going to land there. There's certainly no, nothing, no life to consider here, but it's kind of worth to point out as we continue our journey towards a far more interesting um, uh, planetary object. Yeah, do you hear that sound? I think, we're, I think we're coming in now. What is that sound? It's signaling that Titan is near. So Titan. Titan is about 40% the mass of Mercury, about 1.8 times the mass of Earth's moon, about 150% of the width of the moon, the Earth's moon. Uh, it's spherical, obviously, and it's Saturn's largest moon, larger than the planet Mercury. And this is the only moon that we're discussing today that has been explored 
by a lander, by a human-made lander, the Huygens Titan Lander, a beast of planetary exploration. There are videos available online that show the landing imagery sent back by the Huygens probe. You should watch them. But try to imagine a Titan landing, what this world is like. Unlike so many of the moons that we've surveyed before, this approach is very unique in the solar system. On Titan, we descend from orbit through a thick, cold atmosphere, and everything below is shrouded from our view from space by this murky haze. And you descend through the freezing fog, and strong winds shake your landing craft. Yeah, this is the only moon in our solar system that has clouds and a dense atmosphere, mostly nitrogen and methane. Yeah. And the atmospheric pressure is, is about 60% greater than Earth, so roughly the same as you would find at the bottom of a swimming pool. That's right. But that's actually – so that's heavy sounding to us. Mm-hmm. Like you, you wouldn't want to spend your life at the bottom of a swimming pool. Maybe. But it's tolerable. Yeah. It's tolerable compared to almost everywhere else in the solar system. Yeah, it's I not mean, like going to Venus. Yeah, yeah, so in Venus you might have, an, a, what, like 90 atmospheres or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, it's, it's like a pressure crushing. cooker. Yeah, yeah. You, you couldn't survive. Uh, and then other places, there's almost no atmosphere, atmospheric pressure to speak of. It's nearly like being in a vacuum. Yeah, this, Titan is close. Yeah, this is the Goldilocks finding the bed or the porridge that is it's not ideal, but eh, in a pinch it'll yeah. work. Oh, my ears, but <laughs> I can survive. Uh, but so you land on Titan. You land in the middle of an equatorial desert, and there's a strange sound and tactile sensation you experience upon touchdown. Not a dry thud like hitting rock, but a splat. Ooh. The sound of the soil that you're landing on being wet. Welcome to Bog World. Now, it's maybe not exa- exactly fair to say Bog World because the soil isn't as wet as the mud you'd find in many bogs on Earth. But relative to the rest of the solar system, it's Bog World. Titan is Bog World. And as far as we know... Titan is the only place in the solar system other than Earth that has beaches. Hmm. Some planets have subterranean oceans covered in ice or rock, right? We've talked about that. Some have frozen polar water ice or frozen ice surfaces entirely. But Titan has liquid lakes on a terrestrial surface. However, those lakes are not the water lakes we know and love. Titan has a hydrocarbon hydrological system which translates to seas and rivers of liquid methane. So in the equatorial region, there's this vast desert of ancient water waterways, ancient riverbeds and dried up coastlines. And toward the poles, you'll come across clouds and storms and methane lakes. Now, Titan itself, is uh, its, its mass is composed mainly of water in the form of ice and right. rocky material. In fact, Titan is so cold, negative 290 degrees Fahrenheit or negative uh, 179 degrees Celsius, that water essentially acts like rock and lava do on our world. Yeah. So uh, the ground you walk on, I guess it, it's ice mostly, mm-hmm. but it is water – Water ice that acts like rock. Yeah, so it's it's crazy to think about that. That it's this this it's, it's it's like an alternate dimension where everything's a little skewed. Instead of uh, instead of oceans of water, it is uh it's it's this other substance, and uh, and and the rock is actually water. It's like everything's turned on its head in topsy turvy. Totally true, and that's actually something that's covered in a fantastic lecture that I listened to, uh, given in 2011 by the NASA planetary scientist Christopher McKay. 
about the possibility of life on Titan. And uh, I listened to this lecture. I, I thought it was great. And I just wanted to cover some of the things he talks about and, and maybe we can have a discussion about what they mean. But uh, so in this Christopher McKay lecture, he begins by noting a curious fact. So several years back, we had detected that Titan's atmosphere features a hydrogen flux toward the surface. That means there's hydrogen in the atmosphere and it appears to flow down to the ground and then not come back up. So what's happening to the hydrogen on the surface of Titan? We, we will come back to that question. So McKay talks about how all forms of life need some way of harnessing energy. So on Earth, there are two primary strategies. You've got like photosynthesis, right, capturing sunlight energy, and then you've got uh, chemical energy, uh, redox chemical energy. So life also needs several other things. It needs carbon, you know, organic molecules mm -hmm. to make its tissues out of for food and stuff like that. And it needs liquid water. And we've already discussed why that's a little problematic here. Exactly. So there is going to be no liquid water. And the main constraint on an environment being able to host life on Earth is the absence of liquid water. You, you can mess with all the other variables. And as long as there's liquid water there there's still probably going to be something alive. This, this is why worlds with some form of liquid water are sort of the hot spots of solar system astrobiology investigation, like Europa, uh, Enceladus, another moon of Saturn we'll get to in a bit, mm -hmm. and the, the recently discovered spongy wet spots that appear seasonally on Martian soil. I don't know if you've read about that, but it's yeah. pretty cool. Uh, they, they found that, you know, the, there are some parts of the soil on Mars that seem to thaw seasonally. Yeah, so if, even if there's just occasionally liquid water, there's more hope than, than this world of Titan, which seems to just be ever in the freezer. Yeah, but McKay points out something interesting. It's not necessarily the compound H2O itself that's important because there are plenty of worlds full of completely frozen water ice that, that don't seem to be good candidates for, for life. Life is ultimately a subset of chemistry. It's biochemistry. And that chemistry needs a liquid medium to take place in. Liquid is sort of like the canvas on which you, you know, paint the, the wonderful artistry of complex chemistry. So maybe it's not water that's the key. It's just liquid. It's the liquid phase of matter. So ah. how about those methane lakes on Titan? Huh. In many ways, Titan is analogous to Earth. So uh, Christopher McKay points out that like Earth, it has a nitrogen-based atmosphere. And if you're saying, wait a second, I thought we had an oxygen atmosphere. Oxygen is only about 21% of our atmospheric composition. About 78% of our atmosphere is nitrogen. And if our atmosphere were entirely oxygen, this would be a problem for you. At high concentrations, at regular atmospheric pressure, oxygen, pure oxygen is toxic. It will mm -hmm. destroy your lungs. As we mentioned, uh, it has roughly comparable atmospheric pressure. McKay compares it to being under 15 feet of water. That sounds about right compared to what you said, right? Being at yeah, the bottom, bottom of, of a swimming pool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's not like Venus. It's not like Mars. It's it's not, you know, it's not the nicest place to be compared to what we're used to on Earth, but it's closer to Earth than anything else we're aware of. It has a hydrological cycle with clouds and rainstorms. Now, this is crazy. Yeah, I... I don't usually think of anywhere except Earth having rain. Yeah, and here we're talking about what methane rains, I, I assume. Yeah, methane, of course. So the methane is going to be CH4 raining down from the sky. Mm -hmm. 
And speaking of methane, Titan is rich with organic compounds. Now, this doesn't mean stuff that we know to be alive. Or organic compounds are just a sort of group name for carbon-based compounds mm -hmm. like methane that are very often associated with life, but they exist independent of life. You don't have to have life to make them. But if you want carbon-based life to exist, these compounds need to be around. But the biggest difference is temperature, right? So average Earth temperature is almost 200 degrees centigrade more than average Titan temperature. So it's like a cold twin of Earth. All this stuff that you see going on on Earth, uh, you know, the hydrological cycle, the, the chemistry of the atmosphere, all that kind of stuff – sort of has a cousin that happens on Titan, but it's the freezing cousin. It's the much colder cousin. And that kind of makes you wonder if one of Earth's main features, life, also has a cold cousin ah, on Titan. Ah, okay. So this is a, a situation where we're forced to, to not dream of an entirely different form of life, but to say life as we know it existing on a slightly different world. Like but basically all things being equal, if the parameters were skewed a little bit, could a similar model of life still exist? Well, it'd be life as we know it in one way but not in another. Mm -hmm. So it, it would be carbon-based life. So it's life as we know it in that sense. And, right. and we don't know of any other way that you could possibly build life, you know, without carbon, though it could be possible. We just don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but it is completely unlike Earth life in that all Earth life is water-based right. and this would be methane-based. Liquid methane-based, yeah. Uh, so it would be it would be completely alien biochemistry in that sense, mm -hmm. but not in the sense that we'd still have to imagine it's based on carbon because carbon is the only chemical basis we can think of for building up the kind of complex molecules that we see in life. So what did the the Huygens probe find when it landed on Titan? Did it find microbes? Uh, you, you can guess no because we would have heard about that. Right. But it wasn't equipped to find microbes. So there could have been microbes there and it wouldn't have known. Uh, yeah, it's not like it came back. So Exactly. Um, and that might be a problem if it did because as, as we now know, it's very important to protect Earth from alien microbes. Yes. <laughs> but a little bit about the, the science behind the, the Huygens probe. So – we, when we sent the Huygens probe to, uh, to Titan, we built it sort of like a raft as a floating boat-like craft because scientists thought that Titan was going to be covered in a, in a surf, surface-wide liquid ocean of methane. And the reason for this is because uh, they were able to detect previously that the atmosphere was rich in methane. And atmospheric methane doesn't last forever. It gets slowly destroyed by radiation from the sun and mm -hmm. transformed into other compounds. So you can't have a methane atmosphere that just hangs around for the entire lifetime of a planet, you know, four billion years or however old it is since Titan right. was formed. So there has to be something on the surface to replenish it. And from this, they reasoned it looks like there's liquid methane on the surface of Titan, which is slowly evaporating, being processed, turned into atmospheric methane gas. So they thought, OK, we'll drop a boat into these methane lakes and we'll see what happens. But instead of dropping into lakes, it dropped into the equatorial region of Titan, which was something more like a desert. But the probe was able to detect that it was not as totally desert-like as it first seemed. As we mentioned before, the ground is soft, soft and damp, moist soil. And one instrument was also able to notice that methane steam was coming out of the soil where the relatively hot spacecraft was sticking into it. Okay. 
So if there's liquid all throughout the soil, mm -hmm. this liquid methane throughout the soil on Titan, that seems like an analogy to what we experience on Earth where pretty much anywhere there is moisture of any kind, you can find life. By, by analogy, it seems like if there's life on Titan, we should be able to find it all over the place. Even in a desert. Yeah, yeah, even in the desert, because even in deserts uh, on Earth, if there, you know, there's any water content whatsoever present, you're going to find some kind of life. Right. So in his lecture, McKay asks, okay, so if there's carbon-based life on Titan that lives in liquid methane instead of liquid water, how would we be able to look for clues of this? And one, one clue is looking at atmospheric engineering. So you've probably read about how uh, in looking for exoplanets, they've theorized that one way we could look for life on exoplanets is by looking uh, for oxygen, right? Because the presence of anomalous oxygen is a sign of geoengineering by organisms. Like our atmosphere is not 21% oxygen because of the physics of planetary formation. That wasn't it wasn't like that when Earth was formed. Uh, Earth's atmosphere is 21% oxygen because it's full of critters like plants and cyanobacteria. Yeah, it's organisms change the, the atmosphere of our planet. Exactly. It's their waste. It's their waste product. It's their poop, you know. So they uh, – or I guess they're, they're breathing out. I don't know. However you want to phrase it. They, they take in sunlight and CO2. They use the energy from the sunlight to split up the CO2, make body parts out of the carbon and then spit out the oxygen as a waste product. And so you could look at the original oxygenation of Earth's atmosphere as this mass poisoning event. Uh, we just happen to be the kinds of animals that evolve to thrive amidst this mass poisoning and to work well with it. So how could we look for similar clues on Titan? Uh, well, you would have to imagine what an organism that gets along in liquid nitrogen to do to make a living. So you imagine a, a carbon-based life form that lives in liquid methane and imagine how does it eat? What does it do? Well, Titan has tons of compounds on it that make perfectly good food. One, one example would be acetylene or uh, another would be ethane. So if you're an organism on Titan, food is just all over the place. In McKay's words, food is, quote, falling from the sky. It's not, not hard to get a meal there. But organisms like us get energy by a combination of eating food, so taking in these carbon-based compounds, and then breathing, taking in oxygen, and then reacting that carbon and oxygen to create usable energy and the molecules we need and the waste product of CO2. Our cold counterparts on Titan could perform a pretty much analogous process by reacting carbon-based compounds in food with, instead of oxygen, hydrogen. And that would create usable energy and then a waste product containing carbon and hydrogen like CH4, methane. Uh, so if there's life on Titan, McKay and his colleagues predicted that it would probably alter the chemistry of the surface by depleting it of the compounds it eats and breathes like acetylene, ethane, and hydrogen. And remember, we started with that missing hydrogen. So that there's hydrogen flowing down to the surface and then disappearing. So the most fascinating possibility is that some kind of organism at the surface is consuming hydrogen, spitting out methane as part of its metabolism and respiration, and that's how it gets along. Now, we don't – this isn't proof, right? We don't know that there's something alive on Titan, but, uh, but it definitely makes Titan worth a closer look. I think we should send more probes, right? Oh, most definitely. We definitely. We should definitely send more probes. I mean because one reason is that <laughs> – Always more probes. Always more probes. Um, 
one reason, of course, is that, you know, if we find, uh, and this is something that McKay points out, is that if we find life on Mars or Europa, current life, past life, et cetera, yeah. there's a chance that it's related to us, right? Right. But when in contemplating Titan, this would be an entirely different form. It would be, it would be unconnected to us because it would be based on a different biochemistry. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no liquid methane-based biochemistry on yeah. Earth. And, th- and there probably couldn't be because mm-hmm. Earth is just not cold enough. Like we look at, at Titan and say, how could you live on a world that cold? Mm-hmm. But any life form on Titan would look at Earth as like, like we look at Venus. Yeah. You know, it's just this unbearable hell of intense heat where, you know, the, the stuff you need to live, the liquid methane you need, you just it boils, you know, you can't you can't sustain it. So anyway, we, we mentioned sending those probes. What would what would they look for if we did send probes? Well, M- McKay suggests one thing, look for evidence of the, the chemistry of life there. So uh, the, the example he gives is that uh, organisms on Earth, we, we get oxygen easy, but nitrogen is difficult for us to come by. So we have enzymes that have to bust up nitrogen into molecules in the atmosphere and make them into ammonia in H3. Now, on a world like Titan, the problem wouldn't be getting uh, getting nitrogen, making ammonia. It would be getting oxygen because there's no oxygen available except that which is locked up in the frozen H2O, the water ice that makes the rocky ground of this planet. So you'd see organisms with enzymes for melting water ice and getting that oxygen out of it. Uh, and then another thing he finally suggests uh, is to scoop up organic material from Titan and then look for biases in the distribution of organic materials. You know, so uh, looking for molecules that are appearing in anomalous concentrations that wouldn't be explained by inorganic chemistry, but would be explained if you're looking at a place where the uh, chemistry of the surface is being processed constantly by life forms. But the idea of life on Titan is interesting to me because of how cold it is. So we know there's a basic correlation between heat and metabolism, right? So uh, a life form that lives on Titan is probably a very slow-moving form of life, slow metabolism, slow life cycle, slow evolution. And this kind of makes me wonder about weird thought experiment extending out from this. What would intelligent life? that evolved on a freezing liquid methane world look like? Because in many ways, I think our idea of intelligence is heavily colored by speed, right? So uh, can you imagine an organism that has as much technological and problem-solving intelligence as a human but does everything literally 100 times slower? Hmm. But but, but potentially living a lot longer as well. Yeah, certainly. So... hmm. I mean, it, I guess it all becomes relative then. I guess it's it's just harder for us to contemplate. Like I have a hard time imagining something that's not a like whale sloth in this scenario. Right. And then wonder, <laughs> and then it's even a greater uh, leap for me to try to imagine this alien methane-based whale sloth even developing crude technology on this world. Like right. Yeah, it, it just it, it it's almost too much for me to fathom. I mean, sirens, obviously. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, uh, let us not speak of the sirens of Titan. But I, I, I agree with you about the difficulty of imagining. You know, the, mm-hmm. the whale sloth. Like, um, I just tried to do some math here. Like, if a development happened in humans one million years after the emergence of the species. 
Could you expect a hypothetical liquid methane alien world that did everything 100 times slower to reach the same development in 100 million years? Hmm. Well, that wouldn't be ruled out by the age of the, the universe. But then that sort of introduces questions about like, well, wait a minute. I mean, how would you even get a complex nervous system? Yeah. Because it took life on Earth, what, like 4 billion years to evolve from the first self-replicating molecules to technological intelligence. So would it take life on a cold planet 400 billion years? Uh, and again, I'm just using 100 times faster or 100 times slower as a hypothetical. I don't know exactly how slower it would be. Uh, but if it would take something like that long, we've got a lot of, well, a long time to wait before we meet these slow-moving organisms because that's much older than the universe. Yeah, and again, to, to say nothing of the various cataclysms and extinction events that are likely to occur, to occur in the uh, the history of any life-sustaining, life-evolving world. Uh, so it it might very well be on the the path towards creating this, and then. Whammo! Uh, some some uh, body uh, um, in Saturn's uh, uh, gravitational system just crashes into you and wipes everything out. Yeah, but then again, I also think of a, a very slow organism as a very resilient organism. You know, it's well, just hard to put them down. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, the, the right comet comet strike, the right uh, the right meteor can certainly do that. Has anybody ever created a, a sci-fi alien like that? I'm trying to think of one, like an alien that's just amazingly slow. Hmm. The Ents, sort of. Sort of like the Ents, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not remembering one offhand. I, they tend to be this kind of alien would tend to be the, uh, the, the, the marginally experienced alien in a, in a rather, uh, you know, rich, diverse uh, pantheon of alien. Uh, species. Like this would not be your central character yeah. because they're so unlike humans. This would be like the one character that you go to, uh, you know, about halfway through the novel to get a little uh, elder insight, I guess. Uh, well, it, it it makes me think that they'd be a great creeping menace because mm -hmm. imagine you colonize a world with some uh, 100 times slower than you cold, cold liquid methane intelligent organisms. And at first it doesn't seem like they're bothered by your presence. You can live in peaceful harmony. But it just took them 100 years to decide that they were going to destroy you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they would play a different you know, long-term game. Uh, and I certainly have encountered that in fantasy novels before uh, where you know, what happens when you have the, the great threat does not have to doesn't have to worry about the the day to day or even year to year. It can sleep for centuries and wait for the the game uh, the uh, the game board to improve and situations to to favor it uh, once more. So you know you could see a similar model, I guess, uh, with a you know interplanetary uh, uh, situation, interplanetary politics. <laughs> Isn't that a great disadvantage we're always at? We got to go get the groceries. Yeah. So they can say, you know what, we can lose the next 300 uh, interplanetary <laughs> elections. Uh, you know, for us, that's just a, that's yeah. just a nap. It's small Hyperions. Yeah. <laughs> One last thing I want to talk about for, and we mentioned future probes going to Titan. Definitely in favor of that. Uh, Titan, last I heard, was not the top priority for for future. Uh, missions, but it's, you know, it's something that's being discussed and, and there are some proposals. Uh, but one proposal for future exploration of Titan's surface is the use of a type of robot that I think is really interesting. It's been referred to in the press as the Super Ball Bot, uh -huh. but I, I like the design of this. I've talked about it on uh, the other podcast I do, Forward Thinking, before, but the, the robot 
design is a rover that's based on what's called tensegrity architecture. And essentially, it is a mobile robot that looks like a jumble of rods and wires. So if you just made a tangled ball of sticks and wires connecting them at the uh-huh. ends, that's what it would look like. And it moves by tensing and relaxing the wires. So it kind of tumbles along on the ground. It's a robot tumbleweed. Exactly. Yeah. And it's resistant to damage from hard landings and stuff. So th- this makes it a, an interesting design for a planetary rover to explore. Uh, but I've also always thought this would be a great design for a killer robot in a sci-fi <laughs> horror movie. Like just this this tangle of rods and wires. And it's kind of cute. It's kind of funny. It just kind of tumbles <laughs> up to you, but then it wraps around you just and ten- <laughs> tenses the wires. And then you're in trouble. Well, you know, it makes sense because there's at least one killer robot movie that took place on the moons of Saturn. Oh, yeah? Uh, Saturn III. Uh, had Kirk Douglas in it. Oh, Not you, Michael, but Kirk. This is the movie you sent me the trailer to. Yeah. And it has uh, Harvey Keitel mm-hmm. with like, he's he's looking very slick in it. Yeah. He, very un-Harvey Keitel. Yeah, he's he's not, uh, he's, it's his least sleazy role to uh-huh. date, I think. And, the kind uh, of Flash Gordon aesthetic. And yeah. it, he, he actually looks good in it. Yeah, Farrah Fawcett in it as well. And that has a killer robot in it. Not the greatest killer robot from uh, cinematic history, but, you know. Beggars can't be choosers, especially when you're looking at films that involve the moons of Saturn. <laughs> uh, Joe, it looks like we're coming up on Rhea. Yeah, that's right. So Rhea, after Titan, Rhea is going to seem like kind of a letdown. Uh, Rhea or, <laughs> or Rhea, I've seen it said Rhea also. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Rhea, I don't want to downplay the beauty and, and majesty of this wonderful moon. And so it's the second largest moon of Jupiter, uh, second largest after Titan, of course, Titan being the largest, is about one-sixth the mass of Pluto. Uh, more than 40% of the width of Earth's moon. It's spherical. Uh, in terms of life potential, there's not a whole lot going on here. It's it's a sort of almost half-lunicized sphere of water, ice, and rock with relatively low density. In many ways, it's comparable to the next moon we're going to pass, uh, D- Dione. And as far as surface features go, it's got craters, and it's essentially a serene, beautiful, cold sphere, cratered and silent. Okay, and at a far on a far lesser note, uh, apparently the latest uh, Independence Day Independence Day uh, resurgence mm-hmm. uh, involves uh, at least a minor point about humanity building a defense outpost here. So I don't know why. Maybe it just seemed like a nice, boring place to to put all those guns. Uh, I suppose you know there's sort of like a if you pr- pronounce it Raya, sort of like Ray, sort like of like Ray gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That probably makes as, as much sense as anything. It know, makes a lot of so. sense, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> it makes so much sense. Uh, let's spiral on in and move on to the next inner planet. Yes, uh, Dione, as we mentioned, a small cratered moon, a mean radius of about 349 miles or 562 kilometers. And what we're looking at here is a hard, frozen lump with a dense core, probably a silicate rock, and the remainder of it is uh, is just ice. Water ice. Yeah. A very fine ice powder that's basically like smoke hmm. uh, from Saturn's E-ring constantly bombards Dione. And the dust from the E-ring ultimately comes from Enceladus, which has prominent geyser activity that we'll yeah. discuss in a bit. Great wisps mar the surface of Dione. And uh, 
These uh, turn out these are actually bright canyon ice walls indicating uh, past uh, tectonic activity. And these ice cliffs uh, could be a mature phase of the so-called tiger stripes that are encountered on Enceladus. Right. So we're going to talk about the surface of Enceladus in a bit. But Enceladus is a is a younger, smoother kind of surface, but it does have these stripes along it. So you're saying like if, if Enceladus were allowed to mature millions more years, it could end up looking more like some of the surface features of Dione. Yeah, this is essentially the old boring uh, Enceladus. But nothing, nothing in the sphere of Saturn is boring. No, no, not boring. But uh, yeah. The, the, the less interesting version of the, the same lunar idea, I guess. We are spiraling in faster, and it's something we've uh, got to acknowledge. Now, the next one is going to be the moon Tethys, or Tethys. Uh, so Tethys is a, about 65% of the mass of the dwarf planet Ceres. It's pretty small, uh, roughly 30% of the width of Earth's moon, roughly spherical. There's not a lot of suspected potential for endogenous life on Tethys, uh, and, and Tethys is composed mostly of water ice with no real atmosphere. It's this frozen ice ball tidally locked in orbit around Saturn. But the coolest feature of Tethys is something that I came across, uh, I think last year I, w- I was reading about this, and I, I just love it. I'm, I'm not quite sure why. It's just a, a surface coloration feature. But in July 2015... NASA reported that in enhanced color images from the Cassini spacecraft, there were a series of these arc-shaped red streaks that could be seen side by side, parallel, on the surface of of Tethys. And it looks like Freddy Krueger slashed the moon with his glove. It uh, it wasn't the first time the arcs had been seen. They'd been spotted faintly visibly as early as 2004, I think. Uh, But this was the first time they were imaged really clearly. And it's fascinating because we, we're not positive what causes them, at least as far as I could find. And maybe somebody has a private theory somewhere, but I, I, I couldn't find that these are explained yet. They, they're they probably geologically young, these red streaks, because mm-hmm. they cross over older features like craters. Uh, but what created them and why are they red in color? Scientists don't know. So there was a NASA JPL press release from 2015 that mentioned speculation on uh, that they could be maybe exposed ice with some kind of chemical impurities or they could be outgassing from inside Tethys. But ultimately, we don't know yet. All right. Well, let's leave this moon behind us and move on to uh, one that we've already uh, uh, discussed a little bit, and that is Enceladus, a moon about the size of Arizona. Yes, could fit within the borders of Arizona. Another way to to imagine the circumference of this moon, it, it is not very large, is that if you were to punch a hole in the earth along the borders of the state of Texas, you could drop And why it. would you want to do that? Why so down on but Texas? But just Joe? if you were to do it, take a cookie cutter, Texas-sized cookie cutter, punch out that mm-hmm. part of earth, you could drop Enceladus through the hole. So coming after some of the giants we've seen like Titan and, and, and Rhea, you might be kind of underwhelmed by its size, but do not be underwhelmed because Enceladus is quite interesting. Yeah, one of the crazy features here is that uh, Enceladus has hydrothermal vents that spew water vapor and ice particles from an underground ocean beneath the icy crust of Enceladus, and the plume material contains organic compounds, volatile gases, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, salts, and silica. And it's all expelled out to a distance three times the radius of Enceladus and at a speed of approximately 800 miles per hour or 400 meters per second. It's a continuous eruption that continually refreshes the moon's surface. 
and it cloaks the entire moon in an enormous halo of fine ice dust, which then in turn feeds Saturn's E-ring, which we mentioned earlier. Right. So the E-ring is this uh, outer ring around Saturn. You've mm-hmm. seen those concentrated inner rings. The, the E-ring is more this great vast haze yeah. exp- uh, extending outward. Uh, from Saturn and it's uh, oh oh it's cool I love the the jets coming out of the south pole of this planet Mm -hmm. feeding this and there's an even cooler implication I want to mention in a bit Uh, but there's another striking feature of Enceladus that you would notice long before your spacecraft sets down if you're landing on the planet Enceladus is the most reflective large object in the entire solar system it's like a bright mirror reflecting the sun straight into your eyes and Enceladus may be alive. Ah. Not the planet itself, as we discussed with mm-hmm. the Iapetus, but, uh, but something within the planet. So Enceladus is believed to have a rocky core surrounded by a smooth, high re- highly reflective ice crust. But in between them, evidence indicates the presence of subterranean oceans, much like other moons we observed around Jupiter. Now, I've seen claims of both global subterranean oceans and regional regional subterranean seas positioned under the South Pole. Um, but either way, the ocean has started to become intensely interesting to scientists, especially astrobiologists. Now, why is that? Well, we've seen examples before where these where these subworld oceans I mean, we have liquid water, yeah. and, and clearly we have we have jets of it. We have we have activity going on here. There's energy yeah. uh, taking place. There's warmth, and yeah. there's liquid, yeah. and there and there are important compounds, as you mentioned earlier. What's in those plumes coming out of the southern pole mm-hmm. polar region of Enceladus? Again, the Cassini spacecraft detected organic compounds: carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, salt, silica, volatile gases. Uh, that's good stuff if yeah. you're looking for yeah, life. Yeah, going right down the list, checking off many of the the, uh, the key factors necessary for life as we know it. But do we know it? <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. And that's the thing. The Cassini spacecraft is not equipped, much like the Huygens lander, it's not equipped to detect the presence of life. But it can, it can look for clues. Uh, so the, the material in this pl- these plumes go all over the place. Uh, sometimes it falls back down to Enceladus, uh, forms this filmy mist in space, which you mentioned becomes part of Saturn's E-ring. And I'd just like to point out that if I understand this correctly, if it turns out there is life in the subterranean ocean of Enceladus, mm-hmm. it's probably being sprayed out in these jets. And if the jets become Saturn's oh, E-ring... Yeah. One of the rings of Saturn is a graveyard of alien microbes spread hundreds of thousands of miles into space. Huh. That is crazy to think of it that way. Huh. It's crazy or it's awesome. <laughs> and it's creepy either way. I, I, I think that's great. So much like Titan, to do the real exploration and discovery work about uh, the potential for life on Enceladus, we need another mission. Got to get back there. And I actually just recently read a piece in Scientific American that was talking about uh, one of the people who's working on trying to plan such a mission, the uh, the astronomer Carolyn Porco. And this kind of mission obviously is not easy to devise or or to fund, but uh, best of luck to them. All right. Now, Joe, as we, as we leave this uh, moon and make our way towards our, our next and final uh, destination here, our final object of study, I do want to stress what you're about to look at 
is not a Death Star. It's a moon. It's not a space station. <laughs> it's a moon. Um, I'm talking, of course, about Mimas. Then why are we called an extractor beam? Mm, well, we're going to have some questions then for uh, for Mimas. But, uh, but yeah, it, basically Mimas' big uh, claim to fame is it's just a, a frozen moon that looks a lot like the Death Star from Star Wars. Yeah, it's got this big crater that looks a lot like the weapon, The uh, what would you call it, the crater in the Death Star from which the planet-destroying beam comes out. Yeah, yeah, an enormous crater uh, known as the Herschel Crater. It is 130 kilometers or 80 miles uh, wide, dominates the landscape, uh, giving the world's appearance, the world an appearance of a great eye. Uh, the crater-covered moon is less than 123 miles or 198 kilometers in mean radius. It has roughly the land area of Spain. <laughs> not very big. Yeah, not very big. And again, most of the, this visible side is crater. It's not perfectly round either, more of an, an, an ovoid shape. And it's a low density suggests that it consists almost entirely of water ice, uh -huh. which is the, uh, the only substance we've ever detected on Mimas. It's tidally locked, and uh, this is crazy. It's, uh, it's believed that the impact that created the Herschel Crater probably came close to just shattering it entirely. Whoa. That's how, because, you know, a crater that big on a world this small, uh, you know, it was just a hair away from just breaking it into pieces. So should that have happened, would it have become another ring of Saturn? Potentially, yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know exactly how the ring formation works, well, so we, we don't know, I guess. Well, um, if, if nothing else, it might end up resembling, uh, you know, one of like the potato uh, moon that we mentioned earlier. You know, oh, we, would, okay. we might still have a, a sizable lump, but it would be a lesser lump. It would be one of those uh, those other lump moons that we are not discussing uh, in this episode. You know, among the among the fifty three named moons of Saturn. Uh huh. Now, one of the interesting things about Mimas, though, is that. Uh, it, it should experience more tidal heating than Enceladus, and yet while uh, that frozen world, as we discussed, both geysers and, uh, and, and clearly experiences internal heat, Mimas is just an unchanging wasteland of ice. Oh, yeah. We should have mentioned about Enceladus. I think I forgot to mention that the, the what is the energy source? You know, why is there mm -hmm. heat? Well, it's some of the same explanations that we saw in some of the moons of Jupiter. Right. It's, uh, it's internal stress caused by the orbit and gravitational influence around it. So uh, it's got a not perfectly circular orbit. There's some changing gravitational fields, and this causes stretching and flexing inside Enceladus that leads to heat. Yeah. A lot of, co of comparisons are often made between what we know about Enceladus and what we know about Mimas mm -hmm. to, uh, to the degree that some have speculated on the possibility of a liquid ocean in Mimas. Mm. But it's such a small moon. It, again, the size of Spain, it's, it's hardly the best candidate but, yeah, you could say there's, a, there's still an outside chance that that's the case. Okay, we seem to be passing uh, Mimas at this point. I guess we were not trapped in a, a, a tractor beam. However, we do seem to be moving rather quickly uh, towards the surface of Saturn now, Joe. Uh, oh, no, Saturn, which once seemed quite serene and peaceful yeah. and beautiful. Uh, With its gleaming it's... moons and its, its frozen worlds and its nice, you know, black-white harmony... Plant, uh, lunar mo uh, body here, but uh, yeah, now I don't think we're going to uh, be able to escape. If you notice that as we get closer, Saturn is making a sound. Do you hear that? It's kind of like uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, that scene where they zoom in on the box with the Ark in it and it's making that satanic meow, meow, meow noise. Uh, I can't quite hear that over the uh, 2001 Space Odyssey monolith coral 
uh, arrangement, but but that's because I have headphones in and oh, I'm listening okay. to that. I always listen to that whenever I uh, I move in closer and closer to a large, scary planetary object. Folks, I should let you know that while we were working on this episode, Robert shared with me a fantastic uh, mix that's sort of like a Saturn-influenced electronic music mix. Robert, you've got to share this on the landing page. Oh, yeah. Page. I, will, I will make sure that there's a link to this on the landing page. I believe it came from the, the record label uh, Acacia. Uh-huh. Uh, definitely worth checking out. They put out a number of uh, of cool uh, cool tracks and cool releases over the years, including some stuff from uh, the Weirding Module, which is one of my uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, musical uh, acts out there. This thing definitely made me wish that there was a good John Carpenter movie taking place on a moon of Saturn. Yeah, yeah, we need perhaps we need more John Car- Carpenter space movies. That's what you're saying. More like Ghosts of Mars yes. is what I'm saying. Ghosts of Mimas, Ghosts of Titan, <laughs> one for each world. Get uh, get Ice Cube on the phone and Jason Statham. <laughs> All right, so there you have it, uh, the moons of Saturn. Uh, so now you have both both the moons of Saturn and the moons of Jupiter covered on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Now, there was absolutely no way we were going to cover everything interesting about right. Saturn and its moons, so there's tons more to learn out there. And we're you... constantly learning more. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so feel free to look into this and research it yourself. You know you should feel free. Don't let us tell you that, that you can't learn about Saturn <laughs> on your own. But anyway, yeah, we, we do encourage you to do that because it is a fascinating planetary system and all those moons are great stuff. Uh, and and I feel like we could have gotten into even more about the rings. Sometimes we could probably do a whole episode just about the rings, the ring moonlets and everything like that. Yeah, indeed. Just rings in general because we could discuss uh, other rings uh, on other worlds mm-hmm. in our own solar system. So, hey, if you want have feedback you want to share with us about this, you can go to all the normal places to do it. Head on over to our various social media accounts. We're on Facebook. We're Blow the Mind there. Though if you follow us on Facebook, make sure you're, you're fo- not only are you following us, but uh, but make it uh, make sure you check off the right boxes so that we're showing up, you know, right at the top of your uh, your timeline. That way you can stay on top of all the stuff that we are putting out, all the stuff we think uh, is cool and worth looking at, without having to depend on Facebook's uh, tyrannical algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're also on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Tumblr, and of course, StuffToBlowYourMind.com is the mothership. Should be getting a facelift in the very near future, and we have all sorts of great content there, including all of the podcasts that we've ever done. And if you'd like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback about this episode or any others, or to let us know topics you'd like us to cover in the future, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.